uh, I'm nervous being up here, and I, I, I know most of you don't see that in me because I get up on things and I just kind of go. I'm a self-promoter. I just tell myself I can do it, and I generally do. Um, like singing and playing drums and preaching. And, and so that's kind of how we got to this place where I was like, yeah, I could preach on Easter. And so I was like, Pastor Michael, I got this. You might be away doing the hip thing, so I'm going to cover for you. And now I'm here going, wow, wow, okay. And, and the, my, the weight of the sermon weighs heavy on me is probably the best way to put it. This is not my own sermon. We found a sermon that we felt would be super impactful, meaningful for Easter. And so this has been preached a hundred times before I got to it. And so I'll add my own spin, my own understanding. But the weight of this sermon is that this is the thing. I'm not talking about a scripture and giving a story or an idea of it. This sermon is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, life, death, resurrection. And I really find that too often when we tell the gospel, and maybe I should explain this a little better, when I'm talking to our junior highs, like Justin, um, I tell them, you have a gospel. Everyone has a gospel. Gospel means good news. So if your gospel is cupcakes are great, that is a gospel. It's the good news. You are sharing something with people that you think is good. And so I tell them, celebrate with your friends the good things you have in your life. The gospel of your life is the good stories, the good news, how things have changed and become well for you. When we say the gospel of Jesus, we mean the Bible. The whole thing. Genesis to Revelation. His life is shown in the beginning. The Spirit of God, the Word of God is there in the Old Testament and is there after death and resurrection. Too often we just talk about the Gospels as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And while they are wonderful books of the Bible, they are people's memories, experiences of Jesus in their lives and the world around them. And if you read the four of them, you'll actually notice there's differences. They didn't get all the pieces together, which is not something to be ashamed of and hide, but something so beautiful. Because Jesus will impact every single one of our lives in a different way, and we'll see something a little different. And it's the whole story together that gives us the most beautiful image of God, because he's like, you are the body. It takes all of us to make one being and one understanding. At one point in history, we actually tried to take all four Gospels and just make one storyline. It didn't work. Because some have stories that others don't. Some change the timelines. Some Jesus talks in riddles and parables, and in other ones, he just talks just very straight and plainly. In some stories, Jesus is in the temple at the end, and in some stories, he's at the beginning. So it was everyone's perception. They were telling the gospel, the good news, and we rearrange pieces sometimes when we want to share the good news of someone or something. And I think too often when we tell the gospel to others, it's like when we're trying to tell a joke and we hit the punchline first. We forgot the setup, and we're like, why don't you get it? Or we run a story over in our head a million times. We're like, I've got this, I got the scenario. And then you go to explain it to someone, they're like, what? Because you've arrived at the ending and forgot all the twists and plot turns getting to that end. And sometimes, if I'm honest, I think we present our God in faith like that. We skip over the twists and turns of the journey and hit people with a punchline. And then we wonder why they don't follow or understand. So today I'm going to give two tellings of the gospel. Um, and we're going to do it in chairs because 
why not? And be, it's more fun. Maybe we can follow along. And I really understand what's going on. And, and the first one is going to be more like a courtroom drama where sin is law-breaking and it needs to be punished and God is the judge whose justice must be satisfied. He is the judge that says we must punish this law-breaking act. And, and since our sin is against God, the punishment must be eternal or everlasting or an eternal person, Jesus must substitute and be punished for us. Once the punishment or payment has taken place, the judge is then free to pardon the rest of us since the debt has been paid in full. The second telling, sin is not a law-breaking behavior, but rather a fatal disease. The sin condition is a suffering of the soul. It's rooted much deeper than just a behavior. It's our thoughts, it's our deeds. It's a disease or a condition that makes us subject to death. And here we see a hospital in place of a courtroom. God comes not as a punishing judge, but as the great physician who would heal our brokenness and rescues us from the curse of death. So criminals versus patients, courtroom versus a hospital, a judge versus a doctor. But while metaphors are wonderful, we need to be sure that we're telling the gospel. So, the first telling. In the beginning, God, white chair, created man, black chair, and placed it in the Garden of Eden in his creation and said, take care of it, and things were good. The one asking was, don't eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So man, doing what man does best, gets curious and eats and turns from God, enslaved by fear. And so because God is holy and righteous and pure, he cannot look upon sin, and man is cast out of the garden. Time goes by, and God kind of shows up to a man named Abram and says, I'm going to make a nation out of you. I'm going to build my people out of you, God's people. And Abram's like, this is a great plan, slight problem. My wife can't have kids. And God's like, there will be a miracle baby, and this is how you will know that I am your God. Great. Well, it's taking too long, and my slave looks real pretty and young. So Abram starts the process on his own, turning away from God, breaking the promise, and God being holy Righteous and pure cannot look on sin. So time passes on again, and we get to Moses. He's like, Moses, we've got the people. They're enslaved. Let's get them out. Moses is like, this is a pretty great idea. Uh, but, you know, I'm going to start the party early and take out an Egyptian on my own. If you've all seen the Prince of Egypt movie, you know what I'm talking about. And so he breaks the promise and ends up in exile in the desert. And so God's like, okay, righteous, holy, pure. Can't look on sin. We get to David, and so God's like, David, here's the deal. You are my anointed king. You are going to bring the Messiah about through your lineage. David's like, sweet, king, you know, everlasting throne, great plan. Someone with my name's always there. One problem, that pretty girl across the way who's married to someone else, she's, well, real pretty, so I'm going to go after her, and God's like, okay, you're not supposed to take another man's wife and have him killed so you can have her as his wife. Broken the promise, covenant again. And this goes on and on all throughout history that God comes to the people and the people are like, cool idea, bro. Okay, we're going to go our own way. And God, being holy, righteous, and pure, cannot look on sin. 
And as man continues to turn away from God, God continues to turn away from man because God is holy, pure, and righteous and cannot look on sin. Everything we do to try and make things better is what the Bible calls filthy rags. So we find ourselves with a God that is angry and wrathful and needs to be satisfied for our crimes. So God, in his love, sends Jesus to take her place. He is the new Adam. He will do what Adam could not, live in perfect obedience and, and right relationship with God. And Jesus is continually pointed towards God, and God is towards Jesus. But at the end of his life, Jesus, having taken all of our sin for us, is put to death. And God turns away. But Jesus never sinned. Jesus being holy, being the new Adam. God raises him from the dead. And whoever believes in Jesus and what he has done can now face God. And God can now look upon him because they are clothed or covered in Jesus. Now, if we turn to God and believe that Jesus did this for us, God can finally turn and look towards us because we are hidden in the covering of Jesus. But if we don't believe, we remain in our sin, remain hidden from God. The anger and the wrath are still there. God can't look on sin. And if by the time we die, we haven't turned to accept this for all eternity, we're removed from God. That is the gospel I grew up hearing. I believe that many of you came to faith hearing this gospel. It is what drove me to faith for fear of not being with God. I needed Jesus and I turned to Jesus so that I could be covered by him so God could look upon me and be in my life. And this has caused many revivals or many people to come to faith over the years. But I want to really emphasize and tell you that in our day, in our age, we're creating more atheists with this gospel. We're pushing more people away with this gospel. And there's three tweaks or, or three changes I would like to add to it or, or uh, suggest. And then we'll retell the gospel again. So the first one is this. Or actually, there's also this thought. It, it, if the option was so easy, just turn to God and be saved... Someone's going to make the payment for us. Why aren't people flocking? Doesn't that seem so simple and so easy? Just turn to Jesus. Just turn to Jesus. And I believe we've heard that throughout life. If you just turn to Jesus and, and people are like, well, it's not that simple. My life's harder than that. That doesn't make sense. I feel like that's why it's hard for us to share the gospel sometimes because we're scared of the people's response. So here's my three tweaks. One, it seems to put salvation in our hands. Our response seems to be everything. We turn to God, God turns to us. We turn from God, God turns away from us. And the process continues over and over. It seems to be that it is us who turns to God. We're the ones who initiate it. So does God only face us if we decide to face him? Who's really looking for who here? We seem to be really keen to highlight stories in scripture like the prodigal son, where we see that the son went to the father asked for his inheritance, and turned away, and walked away. Walked away from his family, didn't want a part of it. 
And then it was the son who came back later after he had fallen apart and realized how things were poor, that he's like, I need your help so he could come back to his father. But we fail to put emphasis on parables or the stories like the lost shepherd that Jesus tells as he talks about God and his kingdom. Jesus tells the stories of parable explaining the love of God that the shepherd searches until he finds the sheep. I think I have a slide that goes with that. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And then it continues. And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. The shepherd searches until he finds. Then he takes the weight upon himself, the burden on himself, carries the sheep, brings out his friends and neighbors to rejoice and saying, I have found it. I worked, I looked, I found, I carried, and I brought it home. Celebrate with me. And I think we can really actually see this in the prodigal son, where while the son had turned himself away to go do his own thing, the father sat waiting and watching for the son to come home. It was never that, oh, on this specific day the father was there. He was always waiting and watching, and when the son had turned and had come on his way home, the father saw him in a distance and went rushing out to him. The father was always waiting. The father was always turned to him. Tweak one is that God doesn't stop searching for us. Salvation isn't in our hands. God is waiting for us to turn because he's always staring at us in love. Tweak number two, as it really seems to put God against us, which is really interesting when we're so keen to memorize John 3.16. For God so loved the world, and yet we, we think we have this angry God that is against us. For God so loved the world seems pretty straightforward. So where did we get this idea that God cannot look on us in our sin? I mean, if God were too holy, righteous, and pure to look on sin... Would he not know anything about anyone then? Because he couldn't see us? He couldn't look upon us? So where did we get it? Habakkuk 1.13. Slide. There we go. Nice. Your eyes are too pure to look at what is evil. You can't put up with the wrong things people do. Okay, that, that seems pretty legit. That seems pretty legit. Unfortunately, we failed to read the rest of the verse. And we just took this idea and ran with it. Your eyes are too pure to look on what is evil. You can't put up with the wrong things people do. So why do you? It goes on a little more. So why do you put up with those who can't be trusted? Yes, God, you are insanely holy and righteous and pure and above all things, and, and you can't look at evil, but you continually choose to. Why? This becomes not a condemning verse, but a question of, God, I know what I've done. How do you continue to keep loving me? How do you continue to keep looking at me? We also see that Habakkuk forecasts the coming of Christ. He prophetically prays, in wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk 3.2 says this, Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh, Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years... 
revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. When you're angry, remember love. I've heard of you. Make it known again. Come again. So yes, God's eyes are too pure to look on evil, but he chooses to. So then we've got another one where this came from, Isaiah 59 two, speaking of God turning his face. Your sins have separated you from your God. Okay, that's pretty harsh. They, they have caused him to turn his face away from you so he won't listen. Okay, that is very much a, you did this, God did this. But again... But again, if we get down to verse 15, if we read the whole scripture and stop just picking one phrase, the Lord sees that people are treating others unfairly. That makes him unhappy. He sees that there is no one who helps his people. He is shocked that no one stands up for them, so he will use his own powerful arm to save them. He has the strength to do it because he is holy. Catch this. He is shocked that no one stands up for them, so he'll use his own powerful arm to save them. Jesus is that arm. Jesus is that arm. God on earth, stretching out, redeeming, doing something different. He has the strength to do it because he is holy. And then we finish Isaiah 59 with this. Here is the covenant, the promise, the bond that I will make with them, says the Lord. My spirit is on you and will not leave you. I have not put my words in your mouth, or I have, he did, he did do it. I have put my words in your mouth. They will never leave your mouth and they will never leave the mouths of your children or their children after them. That will be true for all time to come, says the Lord. We've built an understanding of God of angry against us that we choose to do things and, and that God turns us back from us from two verses that if we read the whole piece, we can realize that we're just crying out in our frustration. And the reality is that God is still there, continuing to love and face us and not turning away. So now we say that the Father can look upon us because the Son has covered us. But in doing so, we can paint an image of us hiding in Jesus from God. That we were like this, but in Jesus we can now be like this. We are, we are hidden, that God doesn't see us, he sees Jesus. Uh, one theologian put it this way, we're like snow-covered dung. The problem is we're still poo in, in this metaphor. Jesus is just the snow on top of the poo. If you're walking in the winter and you step on poo, it's still gross. It doesn't change the fact that God doesn't want to look upon us. A modern theologian put it this way, Jesus is our white-hot asbestos suit. Or he's the best of suit, keeping us from the white-hot wrath of God. It's still a protection from God. The problem, though, is that Jesus is God. Did, did we miss that part? Somehow we get to Easter and we separate Jesus from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. We have this Trinity thought. We believe our God is three in one. The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. Yes, yes, yes. Christmas. Yes, yes, yes. Everything. Easter. No. Jesus here. God here. That's a problem because Jesus and God, Jesus is God. Didn't Jesus walk, talk, eat with sinners every day of his life? I, I believe those that say God cannot look on sin have forgotten that Jesus is fully God, that he is God on earth. As Isaiah said, he is God's right arm on earth 
or they have somehow fallen into the belief that Jesus can be separated from the Father. If you get nothing else from today, get this. Jesus saves us for God, not from God. Jesus saves us for God, not from God. Which brings me to my third tweak. This telling uh, of the gospel really seems to put God against Jesus. God the Father against God the Son. Though the Father loves the Son, we have an image of God turning away, deserting, and forsaking. So where do we get the idea that the Father turns his face away? Well, we sing it in How Deep the Father's Love. The Father turns his face away. Great line. Fun to sing. Might not be theologically true. Because the only other time we see it is in Psalm 22, verse 1. My God, my God, why have you deserted me? Which Jesus quotes right before his death. And you probably know how this goes. Jesus cries out to God in desperation because God has forsaken him, deserted him, turned away. Jesus has become sin, taking all of our sin on us. God, being too holy, righteous, and pure, cannot look on sin, turns away. That's seen right here. And Christ experiences the very essence of hell, complete separation from God, which seems very biblical and very logical until it's not. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22, not just the first part, not just the first verse. He isn't just taking that piece. He is claiming that that scripture is about him, the whole psalm, not just the beginning. The psalm in its entirety describes the death and resurrection of the Christ. Of the Christ from their point of view. This, if you were a Jew at the time, you knew this inside and out. You'd heard this over and over. The promise of the Christ coming. You knew he was coming. He would be sacrificed. And you had great expectation in it. It'd be as if today I sang, I can show you the world. Yeah, half of you are running Disney's Aladdin in the back of your mind. You know what happens, or you remember sitting on carpets thinking they could fly. Or I could sing, holy, 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 and the hymn comes back to your mind. You remember moments of praise with God, and you could continue singing the song without me doing the whole lyric set. Jesus spoke the beginning of the psalm, and in doing so, claimed the prophecy of the risen Christ over himself. This was the final act of, I am the one you've been waiting for. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. I am God on earth. I am the king you've been waiting for. I will. And it's very specific, if you read the psalm, of them casting lots for his clothes, of stabbing him with a spear. It is the passion of the Christ, his death. And he's like, this is me. I am the one you have waited for. But we start with, my God, my God, why have you deserted me? Why have you forsaken me? But when we get to verse 24, it says this, He has not forgotten the one who is hurting. He has not turned away from his suffering. He has not turned his face away from him. He has listened to his help, cry for help. So where was the Father when the Son was on the cross? With him, in him, and working through him. The Father doesn't pull the Son down from the cross to save him from dying. Rather, he does something greater. He saves him from death itself, and in doing so, breaks the curse of death from everyone and gives Jesus the keys. So here's our three tweaks. 
Salvation is in God's hands, not our own. God is for us, not against us. And God and Jesus are on the same team. So let's do a second telling of the story. In the beginning, God creates man and puts them in the garden to care for his creation. Man, doing what man does best, turns away from God, eating the fruit, enslaves himself in fear, and God comes looking. Where are you guys? We're hiding. Why? We're naked. Why are you naked? Who told you naked? What are you wearing on your loins? Fig leaves? Okay. Uh, what happened? Did you eat the fruit? Yes. But she did. The snake did. Okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We need to leave the garden, not as punishment, not as exile, but to stop you from eating of the tree of everlasting life and being stuck in the sin. I've got a plan. We're going to work it out. So God goes with Adam and Eve out of the garden, and he clothes them. He's like, you had fig leaves. I give you a real loincloth. Furs are nice. Let's go with it. So then time goes by, and Adam and Eve, again, do what humans do best, and they have children. So we get to Cain and Abel. Cain doesn't like to look at God at this moment, and God comes looking for him and says, Cain, where's your brother? I don't know, it's not my problem. Cain, I know you killed your brother. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a mark on you. I'm going to put a mark on you saying that no one else can hurt you because you are my son and I care for you. And so when he sends him out, he's protected. So then we get to Abram. We get going along. We're like, Abram, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have the people and you're going to have the miracle baby. And Abram's like, but the slave, she's cute. So God shows up and says, buddy, no. I said a promise, the covenant. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to bless this other mother. We're going to bless her child. And I'm still going to give you the miracle baby because I made a promise to you and I'm going with you. So we fast track along. We get to Moses. And Moses and God are, well, I guess we could, they're still friends. And they're hanging out. It's like, Moses, we're going to do this thing. We're going to free the people. Moses is like, party on. I took out an Egyptian. Now I'm in exile. God's like, dude, okay. So he goes and finds him and shows up in a burning bush and says, we're going to do this thing together my way and we're going to do it with miracles and we're going to do it with signs of power that you know that your God is there doing it. Then we move on to David. Okay, we've got the anointed king that, the, that you are going to have from your lineage. There will always be someone on the throne. Sweet, haughty. Okay, buddy, no, you can't go take someone else's wife because you think she's pretty. That's not how this thing works. But he goes to him and does eventually bless the marriage. And from David comes King Solomon, the greatest king of Israel. And from King Solomon comes Jesus. The promise, the covenant is held. And so we see this throughout history where people are like, okay, we're doing this thing. And God shows up and is like, guys, what you doing? Can we not? Maybe, like, I got a plan. And we get to Hosea, one of the prophets, and Hosea's like, God, let him die. We suck. Like, we're tearing each other apart. And God's like, cool, cool idea, cool idea. But then I remember, I remember you as an infant, as a child, and I remember that I took you as my bride and that I love you. 
And so, so throughout the whole Old Testament, we see the prophets coming time and time again with the good news of God, telling people to turn and repent before they've even come to God, before they've realized there's a problem, God is already showing up and making a way. We get to the New Testament, and then we get this fun little guy named Zacchaeus. And I, I literally mean little. It says he's short, he can't see, so he climbs a tree to try and figure out what's going on. Just a little guy. But he's a tax collector, which means he is a Jew stealing from the Jews. Like it's the sheriff of Nottingham from Robin Hood. Nobody likes that guy. And he's like taking, so if, if the tax is $5, he's like, it's 7 because I need to. It's a transfer fee. So he's getting himself rich, and people are not interested in being with him or eating with him or anything. And so he's up in this tree trying to figure out what's going on with Jesus, and Jesus shows up under him. He's like, hey, Zacchaeus, come down. Let's, let's go for dinner. And as God shows up in his life, God's right arm, Jesus on earth, as he shows up in his life, it completely changes who Zacchaeus is, and he doesn't just pay back the money, he pays it back fourfold. It just shakes him to the core. We can then also get to the story of the woman caught in adultery, which is a trap, straight up trap from the beginning, where the leaders throw out this woman and be like, she was sleeping with what, someone that wasn't her husband. First question, where the hell's the man? Like, it takes two to tango. They're just throwing her out there, and it's like, what are you going to do? The law says we stone her. Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus doesn't turn. He gets down, starts drawing in the dirt, and says, go for it if you haven't sinned yourself. And they all leave, and so he goes to the woman. Where'd they go? She's like, they're not here. And so he says, okay, go. Sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. And I think the problem is when we hear that story, somewhere in the back of our minds, we've started hearing this trigger that it's not go, sin no more. It's go and sin no more. It's this condemning voice versus God saying, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. It's more out of care and compassion and love. And so mankind conspired to murder God on earth. The Messiah didn't come how they wanted, and so they wanted to change the story. And so what does God do? He says, I forgive you. While you hated me, I loved you. You wanted to take my life. I gave you mine. And while you were enemies, I made you my friends. On the cross, Jesus bore all of our sin, all of our anger, all of our hatred, everything we had against God, and provided a cure. Because it was a disease that brought us this way. It was a disease that brought us here, not a law we broke, but something in our inner being that has been passed down to generation to generation that we needed a physician to cure it. Because you can't spank a cold out of a child. You can't jail someone until their HIV disappears. It doesn't work that way. There needs to be a great physician that heals. And so when humanity experiences the penalty of its own sin, when we are separated from God because we seem to have not turned to him, what does God do? My love is stronger than the grave. Revelation says this, Jesus says this, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys to death and Hades. And if he is a God who loves us as he's continually turned and followed us throughout our history, do you really think he's going to condemn us with those keys? Or is he going to give us new life? 
So now there's no place that God is not. He's in the grave and he's in life. He's in all places and fills all things with his love, for he is love. And this love is seen as a river of flowing, a fire flowing from the heart of God's throne. Daniel 7.10. Daniel 7.10. Seen as a fire flowing from the heart of God's throne. This love is always towards you. This love never turns from you. To those who respond to God's love with love, we will experience this fire as warmth, as comfort, as eternal joy, as peace. Think of it this way. If you're sitting in a fireplace, nice wooded cabin, snow falling gently outside, that fire is warm. It is nourishing to you. To those who respond to God's love with hatred, they experience this river of love as a consuming fire. Some will resist and reject God's love. We know that. Some will resist and reject God's love and forgiveness to the bitter end. We know even in this world that casting love upon your enemy will cause them anger and pain as long as they hate. If you are angry at someone, are you ticked off at someone and all they want to do is care for you, you get angrier at them until you can set your hate aside. That, that love does not come off as loving. It becomes as more hatred. Why are you doing this to me? Why are you caring for it? Fight me. And so there will be some that reject God's love and forgiveness because they want the fight. They want to push back. And so now, if we turn, God shows up. We want to run. We want to say, God, I want like five minutes myself. And God's like, hey, what are you doing over here? I've been watching you. Let's talk about this. Because God is always towards us. Jesus is always for us. And he comes not as a condemning judge, but as the great physician. I have one more imagery to give you. I heard this story years ago, and it's just stuck with me. A pastor, who, who, whom I, I would call maybe my mentor because I listened to many of his podcasts and he's really spoken into my life. He said he was sitting at a purity conference. For those that don't know what that is, it, it's when Christians had this great idea to just preach purity and, and um, just abstinence and stay away from, from any sort of sexual conduct. But we're going to take this and say any sort of sin... And so this preacher is up there speaking. He's sitting, the one I like is sitting in the back row, Matt Chandler. And, and the, the speaker takes out a flower and says, let's picture that this is you. And then he starts passing the flower around as he's talking. And of course, because it's teenagers, people are poking it and smelling it. So some, some leaves fall off and it gets broken in the stem and some flowers just kind of break apart. And by the time it gets back to the stage, it's looking a little more like this. And he says, see? This is what happens. Does anybody want this? When you, t when you become sinful, when you act out, does anybody want this? And Matt Chandler is in the back of the room screaming in his mind, Jesus wants the flower. It is not that you have to fix yourself before you come to God. God is always towards you and looking for you. Whatever state you are in, God says, I want you. I love you, I care for you, and I've always been there. Jesus wants the flower. Jesus wants you. And that is the beautiful gospel. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus the Christ. 
And so with that, I'd ask you to stand with me. We have a, a tradition in Christian history that we read scripture together. I as the leader read it and you respond because we are one body. And so we're going to read through Romans and then we're going to move on to baptism. Thank you for your